It's time for the Chip Race. Hello, welcome to season eight of the Chip Race and a curtain raiser hatched in the studio by me, David Lappin, my co-host Dara O'Kearney and our sponsor Unibet Poker. This week we are joined by Hall of Famer, WSOP and WPT champion Mike Sexton. We also sit down for a chat with Twitch poker sensation Arlie Shaban. Dara examines a crazy big fold that I made at the recent Unibet Open Dublin. We catch up with all the big stories from the poker world. But first... A few days ago, I hastily tweeted my thoughts on PokerStars' offer to Joe Ingram, tying in today's guest Arlie Shaban's platinum pass to Joey accepting a pass himself. Had I known this tweet would induce the longest engagement I have ever had on Twitter, I would have chosen my words a little more carefully and laid out my opinions in more than the length of a single tweet. Well, in that tweet, I suggested that Joey and PokerStars had hatched this together, my assumption being that somebody would have gone to Joey ahead of time to suss out if taking a pass was something in which he would be interested. If he said yes, then I assumed that he would play out very ways in which it could be presented to the public, choosing the one that they felt would have the maximum effect. Joey came back at me with a vehement denial, it must be said, saying it happened completely as it appeared, something I'll be honest I'm still a little sceptical about. As we went back and forth, I was accused of conjuring a conspiracy theory, which I guess to a degree I did. But in my defence, I do think there was some logic to my theory. The nature of promotion is often to make things which are planned seem spontaneous to engross the onlooker in an engaging, dramatic storyline and thus maximise the impact. Firstly, I know poker stars a little bit. I'm not in cahoots with them as per the more surreal and meta portion of my chat with Joey, but I have had my interactions with their company and consider some of their staff my friends. I know how careful they are, something I understand because similar care is demonstrated by the company I represent, Unibet Poker. Over the years, when booking guests for the chip race, I have interacted with several of PokerStars PR people. My biggest observation from this process is that they are incredibly careful and very, very deliberate when granting access to their talent. As such, Arlie's 12th labour was bizarre and totally out of whack with their normal modus. If taken on face value, it was in the realm of extortion or blackmail, something a multinational company tend not to do in plain view. So this is sort of guerrilla marketing, the likes of which you might see from brands like UFC or WWE. In a nutshell, it's a high-risk hype machine approach that is totally out of character with a careful brand that like to control outcomes. Engaging with someone like Joey, one of their most vocal critics, is risky enough. Directly embroiling him in a promotion where he's put between a rock and a hard place would be, in my opinion, to play with fire. Well, during that Twitter conversation I had two weeks ago, I was joined in the thread by my good friend Barry Carter. Well, I am very pleased to say that we are joined now by none other than author, journalist, PokerStrategy.com editor and blogger at PokerMediaPro.com, Barry Carter. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Happy New Year, if it's uh, not too late to say that. Thanks very much, Barry. I'm delighted to say Barry has a very exciting announcement to make. But before he does that, I want to ask him what he made of PokerStars. Rather unusual approach to Arlie's Platinum Pass. And of course, how, if taken on face value, Joey tanked three bet PokerStars, saying he would attend, allowing Arlie to attend, if Reddit sensation Jeremy Hilserkop was also given a pass. Well, I suppose I'll just hand things over to you, Barry. Should I be wearing a tinfoil hat? Was I that crazy? I don't know. The funny thing was that the, the word conspiracy was used a lot. And, you know, <laughs> like, no offence to poker players, but in the real world, people tend to discuss stuff in private before they announce it. I didn't consider it a conspiracy <laughs> at all. Like, like yourself, I thought maybe the poker stars had contacted Joey, you know, a week or so before and just said, you know, we'd like to bridge the gap and this is how we'd like to do it. I don't particularly think that is a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's more I mean, choreography than conspiracy. 
Yes, exactly. Choreography. You know, and I certainly didn't think there was anything nefarious going on. You know, I actually think it's a good move all round. You know, it's a, it was a good way for poker stars to extend an olive branch to certain people in the community. I don't think Joey had any ethical dilemma. I think he's been a great ambassador for the game. Yeah, the, the oddest thing about it for me was just the fact that you and I were being confused of conspiracy theories. I just thought it was some good marketing from poker stars and maybe it was slightly planned in advance and, and nothing more than that. Yeah, and that's exactly where I came from as well. I, I agree with you, and I was at pains to remind people I thought Joey should take the pass, and I didn't think he had a particular conflict. You know, you, you could certainly say that people may question the way you would give any criticisms or lack of criticism going forward, but then you could equally say, well, no, he's still himself and he's doing that. And I think that would just come out in the wash of, of how he handled himself. Dara O'Carney probably knows me better than any other poker player, so I am keen to know whether he thinks I was completely way off base here. You used the word choreography there. Yeah, no, I, I must say I, I'd echo completely what Barry said. Having worked in the corporate world for 20 years, it just seemed totally normal of the way the companies would do it. They wouldn't throw something out like this and risk having it blow up in their face without at least ascertaining what the likely uh, outcome would be if they did make an offer like this. I mean, around the time this was announced, we were actually at our Christmas dinner with all our main Irish poker friends, and that was certainly the widespread view there as well. So it didn't seem outlandish. It seemed just perfectly normal. Yeah, as I said, I would associate this kind of marketing with WWE wrestling or maybe UFC in more recent years. I kind of think Joey was just enjoying it, really. I, I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I felt that too. At this, at this point, I do personally believe that it was exactly as it was on face value. And I, I think Pakistan will have had a backup plan if he'd have said no. Uh, I don't think it was a conspiracy or, or pre-planned. I, I actually just think he quite enjoyed trolling everybody about it over the uh, over the Christmas period, maybe giving Ollie a little bit of a sweat. And obviously what he did for the guy at the end was uh, a very nice little bit of icing on the cake. I wish I'd done. Uh, had a video of myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we, all, we all need to up our crying game i think um just to echo what david said there i mean joey's obviously massive in the area that we operate now in as well podcast i mean he's the original poker podcaster he's done an incredible amount for the community down the years so i don't think anybody begrudged him and I, I think one other positive thing came out of this whole thing too which is that we'll never have to contend with having sean deep on the ship race <laughs> <laughs> I really would have liked PokerStars to go one further and try to get Ali to persuade John Duffy to go to the event. So. <laughs> That really would have been an ultimate labour. Well, I have to say, it did strike me at one point that my best shot somewhere in the middle of what was a genuine question about whether I thought what Joey was doing was to be taken on face value was to go, well, if I bury myself so much into this, maybe they'll throw me a pass. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, the funny thing is, um, if Pakistan's do do the event again next year, which I actually think they will, it seems like possible plus EV game plan would be to just rip the shit out of them for a year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which isn't yeah. difficult, it has to be said. <laughs> well, look, enough of that stuff. That was the Christmas nonsense and the New Year fun and games. You are here for an important reason, Barry, and that reason is satellites. You've been talking a lot about satellites recently. Can you tell us why? Part of it was for selfish reasons. They are my favourite form of poker. I also think that sheer common sense would make it obvious why that they benefit everybody in poker. You know, for the online operator... It means more people go to their big events. For the professional, it means more weaker players get in the uh, higher stakes events. And every now and then it makes a very marketable story when a you know plucky amateur wins one of them. And then, you know, last year we had the $20 million event from Party Poker and 
part of the reason why that was so successful was because they put a very, very generous satellite schedule on. Yeah, you mentioned satellites there and recreational pairs. I mean, to a very large extent, the poker boom was fueled by, you know, the story of Chris Moneymaker winning that satellite to the World Series main event and then going on to win the World Series main event. Do you feel like the online poker sites have kind of lost their way when it comes to satellites? Well, I definitely think that we've forgotten about this Cinderella story that the uh, the moneymaker effect kind of gave to poker. Every now and then, there is a big satellite winner that gets people talking again. Like again, in the aforementioned big online tournament, one of the guys, the guy who came third, don't know his real name, he qualified for $5 and he won $1.3 million. And if we have a brilliant, natural, organic way to market the game, it is whenever a underdog beats the professionals so Chris Moneymaker John Hess I always say my mother could beat Phil Ivey on a good day and that's probably the most marketable thing about this game and we sometimes do lose sight of that yeah what do you think is better though some sites do a one seat per player and then sort of freeze you out so if you win your satellite immediately that's it you've got it and you can't play those anymore and then other sites have gone for tournament dollar style things where they keep your money in the system. There's a bit more liquidity then. So you win your seat, you win another one, maybe you can push it to the next event or you can have tournament dollars to spend on the site and, and whatnot. Do you feel like one of these is better than the other? No, I don't, I don't think there is a one size fits all approach. We are joined by uh, the guy who probably is the Bible on this particular topic, Dara. But, um, I, oh, I, sorry, I thought you meant me, sorry. <laughs> I forgot Dara was on the call, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of think some sort of hybrid of the two. I mean, if you allow professional players to unregister from the satellite that they've won and just take the money instead, it's a perverse incentive. You don't get people actually playing the destination event that they were supposed to play. But at the same time, it's the satellite grinders that make the satellites run in the first place. So I, I kind of think that you can't have it completely flexible where people can just take the cash because it gets exploited too much. I also like the idea of you've got to play the first satellite package that you win, but if you win future ones, you can take the money for that as well. So I don't think you can have extreme in one way or another, but something in the middle. Absolutely. Well, Barry, before we go, you do have some fantastic news, which does involve somebody sitting right here beside me. That's right, yeah. I'm delighted to say that almost a year to the day since I suggested it to him, a certain Dara Kearney and myself have just finished a book on satellites. I also realised that I've never said Dara's surname out loud before so I, I don't know if I've said it right or not which is uh, uh, it's some... actually Carney <laughs> well that's yes, embarrassing I... for the co-author isn't it <laughs> there's a handful of poker books that I always thought would sell and just strangely have never been written and as someone who used to be quite a big satellite grinder myself I knew satellites was one of them and um, you know Dara most people regard him as the best satellite player in the world it made perfect sense to see if he wanted to, to do the project it's been a hell of a lot of fun and um, we, we're just putting the finishing touches to it now well Dara what has it been like working with Barry yeah it's been wonderful working with Barry it's been very uh what I would say low maintenance my biggest issue with committing to do a book has always been the amount of work um, and Barry's made the process as painless as possible um, he's been really good I think Barry apart from obviously being a great writer and having written you know one of the great poker books Barry's also kind of coming at it from the level of most of the people who will be reading and yeah. one, of, one of the dangers of being an expert in any area is that you just assume people know stuff without having to explain it and Barry's been very good at both working out what the organisation should be the initial spark for this was a satellite webinar that I did but Barry actually went back and said actually it makes more sense to restructure this rather than the way that you structured in the webinar and he was completely right on that so I think this will be a much smoother pill 
for recreational players and aspirational pros to take on board than something I would have done on my own. Well, it's a very thinly veiled way of saying Barry's bad at poker. So, <laughs> but no, no, he, he is right, and I actually do pride myself on that being my unique selling point. Is that I'm not a professional myself, but it was funny because I didn't understand several of the higher level concepts that Dara explained at the beginning. I'm pleased to say I understand most of them now. But by the end of the book, there's a final chapter. Dara knows which one it is that I submitted to him that I essentially wrote based on everything he taught me rather than parroting what he'd done. And I was pleased to see that it came back with a minimal amount of edits. So I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was really impressive. Uh, that, that was probably the proof in the pudding that the, the teaching worked because Barry actually went off and wrote this significant chapter at the end, pretty much all on his own. And there was uh, there was really nothing, just a word here or there that had to be changed. But he clearly had mastered all the concepts. Yeah, I mean, I will say this as well. You say a word here or there or nothing, but I, I literally, you know, I can get, 4,000 words out of a 10-minute chat with Dara. Some of the throwaway comments that I'd hear him say would blow my mind. Yeah, well, here, here to that. It's been a pleasure working with Dara over the years and, of course, through our strategy segments here and, of course, lots of more informal chats about hands. I have benefited similarly. That leaves me with three quick questions for you, Barry, or maybe either one of you who would like to answer. One, do you have a title in mind? Two, are you going to persist with that photograph that I saw on Twitter a couple of days ago that went out? And three... When is this book going to be on the shelves? A uh, quick answer to all three is don't know. But um, <laughs> here, here's some book advice for fledgling authors. I'd love to go with a very clever name. But if Dara agrees, it is probably going to be something very search engine friendly, like poker satellite strategy. <laughs> <laughs> really pushing about out. I don't know about the cover, but I do know that uh, people do judge books by cover. So I will actually be spending a bit of money on someone to design the cover and in terms of when it's out i'm hoping february time definitely in time for people who are contemplating qualifying for the world series main event as a, mm-hmm. a good sort of benchmark yeah i leave those sort of business decisions on the publishing side to, to barry because he's got far more experience than i would say that the cover created a lot of attention immediately so it obviously served its function in that i assumed it was a joke but jack sinclair immediately sent me a message saying if this is the actual cover if you promise that you'll <laughs> use this cover i will wear a t-shirt with this cover on every single final table i make so that's the plus <laughs> of sticking to the, the minus is that when i showed it to mrs doke she immediately threatened to divorce me if that was the cover <laughs> She's horrified by the photograph. She despairs that that photograph even exists and certainly that it's got the attention that it has. Well, guys, I cannot say more sincerely. I wish you so much luck with this book. I hope it makes you both millionaires. I hope it's the biggest selling book of 2019 in poker. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Well, returning to the topic that kicked off this chat, in the next segment, we will be joined by Arlie Shaban, who coincidentally joined us for an interview just days before his 12th Labour was announced. Before we do that, it remains for me to say, Barry Carter, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Barry. We're joined now by a man who once streamed for 125 days straight on Twitch. At the time of recording, he just completed his 11th Herculean labour, which means he is 11 twelfths of the way to playing the PSPC in the Bahamas. By the time you listen to this at home, I'm sure he will be taking a seat in the biggest 25k in poker history. He is, of course, Team Run It Up ambassador, Arlie Shaban. Arlie, welcome to the show. What's going on? Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure, Arlie. Arlie, I've got to say, I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. I'm a big fan of yours. I've been really enjoying your streams. I love what you bring to Twitch. You really bring something different. I can't say I brought anything different in my Twitch career. So I really do recognize when people can bring something new to that format. 
That means a lot. It, re it really does. I put a lot of pride in the work I put into Twitch. And when people recognize it, it honestly, it means the world to me because I didn't expect as many people to recognize the work I put in. I thought it'd, it'd take a little bit more. So it means a lot. It really does. Well, firstly, Arlie, can you tell us about the 12 labors? I know some were maybe more difficult than others and maybe talk us through, you know, what was the most challenging for you? Yeah, so um, some of the past tasks I had to do were amazing. Like one of them, I had Dan Nogranu come on my stream and we had to do a training session. So we actually went through a bunch of my hands. But some of the other challenges have been ridiculously difficult. Like the one where I had to go against Nananoko, uh, he's a multi-table beast. And at one time we were 17 tabling heads up against each other. And he literally was not going easy on me. Like I, he was going fast and I was like coming real close to timing out in games, like just legitimately panicking because I don't know what these challenges are before I start them. So it's like, I wake up, I'm kind of like a little groggy. It's in the morning, ready to go. And then bam, they slap a challenge on me. And 40 minutes later, I'm 17 tabling Nananoko, like trying to come up with a strategy in my head on the spot. Like, oh, I did not expect this. And I'm like, my brain is like literally freaking out. So that one was awfully difficult. I had to uh, chase Chris Moneymaker through the mountains of Tahoe on an electric powered mountain bike. They gave him a <laughs> huge head start and they were just like, go get him. And like, I was going fast on this electric powered bike like when i was going downhills one time i flipped over the handlebars like i tripped over chris's bike at one time and smashed my face got a good old <laughs> black eye like it was it's been it's been some crazy adventures out there for sure in these challenges wow i, I had no idea there were some some sick physical challenges they must have this really heavily insured in case you die Oh, like I literally ended up going to the hospital because it was crazy. When I hit my face off of Moneymaker's handlebar, it was fine. Everything was good. But then after I went back to my hotel, like my face was perfectly fine. I told them like I might have a black eye tomorrow, like maybe. And they were like, oh, really? You hit it that hard? And I was like, yeah. So I go into my hotel room and I found out later what happened was I blew my nose. And when I blew my nose... <laughs> I guess it popped a vessel or something <laughs> under my eye and it went from completely looking exactly normal to swollen 100% shut within five seconds. So I was like, oh my God, did I break a bone in my face? Like what just happened? And then we went to the hospital and I was fine. <laughs> well, David mentioned at the top your Twitch marathon. I believe originally the challenge you set yourself was to stream uh, 1000 hours. What motivated you to do that? So yeah, I had the hugest motivation in the world to do that. And what that was, was I did not want to fail. I was giving up everything and trying to become a poker player and Twitch streamer. I had just become a full-time poker player about four months before starting that Twitch marathon. And I was working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car for about nine months before that. And for those nine months I was at Enterprise, it was hell. I knew it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And I just put myself into a bad position after uh, I was on Big Brother Canada, a reality TV show here. And for a few years after that, I just traveled and partied for literal years. And I ended up going into a bit of debt. So I had to work super hard at Enterprise. And that is how I did the thousand hours in the 125 days. I told myself, 
it's going to be really hard to break into the Twitch market. No one knows who I am. It's going to be really hard to get any type of following with all these beasts like Lex and Kevin and Jamie. Like, I'm just like, how the heck am I going to work my way in there? And consistency and challenges are things I realized Twitch loved. So when I stated out loud, I was going to do it. Originally, I said I was going to do 50 days in the Twitch community. They honestly laughed at me. I was, I was a brand new streamer. I was saying it for my very first stream. And I was like, I'm going for 50 days straight, guys. And they're like, this isn't even possible. Like, you can't go. And I was saying eight hours a day. They're like, you can't do that. You've never streamed before. You don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, I'm so determined to do this that I'm going to. And I don't even get too fired up when people tell me I can't do something because I don't care about like proving people wrong. For me, it's like I set my mind to something and I don't want to fail. I just want to do it. So I did the 50 days and there was such a bigger reaction than I expected to that. So the day I hit 50, I was like, okay, I'm just going to go 100. And I told that to Twitch and Twitch was like, yeah, this is sick. Let's do it. But in my head, as soon as I said 100, that was going to be 800 hours because eight hours a day. And I knew that was just too close to 1,000 for me to be happy stopping at 800. <laughs> so I just did the math and eight times 125 is 1,000. It worked out perfect. So I was like, okay, I'll do eight hours a day for 125 days. That's 1,000 hours. And I will not stream on day 126. So the motivation was not working at Enterprise and being able to follow a, a passion of mine. But then, Arlie, you were so close to 365 days. Why didn't you keep going? <laughs> The funny thing is, it was hard for me not to stream that next day, 126, just because I'd gone so many in a row and I knew I was officially breaking the streak. But I'm a small stakes player, so I won about 13 grand my first 50 days. And then in the next half of it, lost about four grand. So I was only up just under 10 grand total. And it's because I was just losing and I was sucking for the second half. My brain was mush and not thinking properly. So I actually thought about going longer, which is sick, but I knew I needed to take the time off and become just a better player. Well, earlier, your outgoing personality is pretty obvious. You originally came to prominence, as you mentioned a moment ago, as a Big Brother contestant. Reality TV and poker players are actually no strangers historically. I remember Maria Ho on The Amazing Race, Annie Duke on The Apprentice, JRB on Survivor, and of course your compatriot, Kevin Martin, also in Big Brother Canada. Aside from the competitive nature of these shows, do they have any crossover with poker? They do, for sure. Certain players get cast on reality shows because they have strategic minds. Other players get cast because they're like ditzy models and stuff. So it's like everyone has their own role. It doesn't work for everyone. But like there's a certain player, a specific role that does translate pretty well. Like Kevin, Kevin's a perfect example of that. He's got a really, really like GTO brain, not just GTO in poker, game theory optimal for all games, all, any game, Kevin's brain can come up with the most optimal way to play it. If it's like an arcade game or anything, I've watched Kevin work out just brilliant, brilliant game theory. And that translates really well in Big Brother and it translates really well into poker. So yeah, I can see there being a, a relation there. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I know somebody who works in reality TV and they told me there's actually a fundamental difference between the way people consume reality TV in the UK and the way they do in the US. In the UK, people just kind of want to show and they want narrative and they want to root for who they like the best and so on. Whereas American audiences almost like rail the game aspect of it and they like to see somebody who's actually playing a good game and they don't mind that. Which of those two camps does uh, Big Brother Canada fall into? 
It's honestly probably split a little bit because I've watched Big Brothers all around the world too, especially before I played, I was really into watching the show. And uh, you did hit the nail on the head perfectly. That's exactly what the two different like UK and American Big Brothers are like. And Canada is kind of just a cross between them. It's like people do like seeing really good gameplay and and stuff like that but people also just really rally behind personalities and stuff so i think it's a good combination of it i also saw a quote from you where you said that you studied twitch for over a year before joining it Mm -hmm. Uh, could you unpack that for us oh absolutely it was so fun for me to do and i was completely obsessed with it so I was just on Twitch all day, every day. So what happened was I had a chat with Kevin Martin. He's one of my best friends. And I was like, I'm considering joining Twitch. I'm considering becoming a streamer. I think I can do it, but I would never, ever want to do this. If you thought it was me stepping on your toes or like, this is kind of your thing. You don't want me coming in your scene or like, I just, I would never do it if it was weird to you at all. And he was just like, honestly, Arlie, it would be so sick if you got on Twitch. You should just do it. I think you'd kill it. And I'll give you some pointers. Like he gave me some some pointers and he was like, this is what you have to do. Just told me just like, I need to study. I need to get better at poker. He said, I'm good, but it's like, I need to just put in work, go through a training program. I need to get good bankroll management, lower my stakes. He just gave me like the fundamentals. And then what I did with that is like, I ran with it and I was like, okay, Kevin gave me the green light. He sounded really pumped and motivated. Now I need to figure out where I fit in Twitch. So all day, every day, when I could, when I wasn't working or when I wasn't doing anything, oh, I wouldn't do anything but work or prepare my escape from work into my new career. I just watched Twitch Poker and I would go into all the different streams and I started studying their growth. I wanted to know how fast everyone was growing just so I could have a ballpark on some type of goals that I could set for myself. So every single poker streamer, the top 30 in the world, I screenshotted their accounts. And then I would I would just look in a week, in a month, in two months, in six months, how many followers they were getting, how many views they were getting. And I was calculating over it uh, over a per day basis. And then I had a ballpark of, where some of the smaller guys, the middle guys, and the top guys were. And so that gave me a really good ballpark for the goals and how fast I wanted to grow. But then I went in all the channels and I was like, okay, why are these channels awesome? Like I would stay in Lex's channel all the time in awe. And I'm like, this is in fucking incredible. Like, I can't believe what he's doing in this channel. Like, And I would just be like, why? And I just saw like his personality, his drive, his determination, how hard he went. He loves poker and he just gives her. And I was like, well, I have those aspects in me. Like I'll just bring them to the forefront. And I realized poker streamers talked a lot about um, how it's hard to be consistent. You need time off, like it's hard mentally. And that's what gave me the idea to do the challenge is when I was studying Twitch, I was like, Everyone talks about they need the break, they need time off. Oh, I just did a 12 hour stream. Oh, I streamed five days in a row. I can't wait for the weekend. And I was like, I'm just gonna do something psycho so people know who I am. I realized there was huge open gaps where none of the big streamers were online. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then I just networked with them all because I love people and I loved them. 
I blew them all up on social media. Every one of those team online pro and all the other poker streamers because they were my legitimate idols and they all started responding to me. And then they found out I was starting a stream and they all showed me a bunch of love. They're all legends and it was incredible. So that was kind of the, the study aspect of it. I have a question now about, this might be a slightly strange one, but a good friend of Dara and mine is Finton Hand, who is obviously a colleague mm-hmm. of yours. And he once told me, I think this was, I have an image now of sitting in a jacuzzi, we both go to the same gym. Dara's going to laugh now. because Oh my God, being in a jacuzzi again. Using in jacuzzis in hotels. But I remember him saying something along the lines of the number of viewers he was getting. There was like a tipping point, maybe it was a year or two ago, where the number of viewers he was getting was as important to him or maybe even more important to him than a winning session. Like if he lost money but had a huge stream where loads of people watch, he actually got really buzzed and preferred that to a small winning session that very few people watch. Is that something that you've experienced too? It seemed bizarre to me as a poker player, but maybe it's something that can happen. Oh, no, that, that's definitely a thing for sure, especially for a newer up-and-coming streamer. Like, well, like for an example would be, um, I've got huge hosts. Like, when Lex hosted me the first couple times in my first few months, it did not matter if I had one of my biggest losing sessions. I don't even remember if those were winning or losing sessions, but those were some of my absolute favorite streams I've ever had because Lex just recognized me. Lex threw me 6,000 people and it's like I literally didn't care what was happening after I still tried to play good poker but I'm sure I wasn't playing proper I'm just losing my mind trying to keep up with chat and super excited so I I definitely understand what Finton's saying there sometimes you just have a killer stream where it's just you have no clue why you have so many viewers. You have way extra and everyone's so active and having fun and like conversation is flowing and chat really does determine sometimes just how the day goes. Yeah, it does seem that Twitch poker players, the poker aspect is secondary to a large degree to the interaction. I'm very close friends with Alan Widman and Alan obviously has moved in from other games into poker, but he told me once that I think he spoke to Doug Poker early on about the fact that he was trying to combine twitching and poker and Pope told him more or less well you can't do the two you can't be like an absolute top class poker player and a top class Twitch streamer uh, it's, it's one or the other do, do you feel that like Twitch is something that you're going to be in for the long haul or at some stage do you think you'll actually try and move towards you know improving your poker game Right, well, first thing I have to say to that is huge shout out to Alan. What an absolute <laughs> legend. Are you kidding me? That's sick. Your buddy's with him. I've connected with him a bit on uh, Twitch and he's the absolute man. The thing is, he's so nice. He's just such a good dude. That That's why. He's just amazing. No, no, you're, you're wrong, Arlie. We, we've gotten to know him really well. He's no, no, he is really nice. Shut up, <laughs> he's, he's a really bad person deep down yeah, when you get to know him. So what was the actual question? So the question was the sort of the trade-off between studying poker and getting as good as poker as you can and the Twitch streaming aspect. So, okay, it absolutely has hindered my growth as a player, I can tell, because, again, I'm newer to being full-time, but the path I was on just before I started Twitch with the crazy amount of studying I was doing and the extreme growth I experienced in a very short period of time, just becoming much more profitable than I was, slowed down because I just don't study close to as much as I want to. It's so hard to study some days when I'm looking at the Twitch directory and it's a little bit slow and I'm like, well, I could just hop on and have a killer stream today. 
I guess it's hard. One of the harder parts is when you're studying, and then sometimes I obviously do still study while I'm streaming. When I go through a good study spree, then you have to experiment with a bunch of new stuff. And when you're experimenting with new stuff, you don't really know for sure if it's going to work or not. So Mm -hmm. you make a bunch of weird punty plays and you're doing that in front of a bunch of people and you can't fully justify it because you're learning. So it's like Mm -hmm. other pros who have been around forever and made millions of dollars, it's definitely easier for them to transition into Twitch because they're super comfortable. Like Jason Somerville says it best. And I heard him actually say almost this exact thing we're talking about. Like it's so easy for him to just go and not give a shit about what chat says. If they're like, Oh, you made a stupid play. He's like, well, like I literally know what I'm doing. I've played poker forever, but for a newer player like me or, or someone else who's literally learning while they're on Twitch, when someone calls me out, it's like, yeah, I can't, I can't say hundred percent I'm right or wrong, or I'm not too sure in, in some of these spots. So I really don't let it get to me, but it can, like, I can see how it's, uh, it's just harder. It, it, it's just harder to, to learn and grow in front of people, I think. Well, Ernie, we spoke a bit about your previous sort of career background, I guess the the year in enterprise and the Big Brother experience. You earned a business communications degree from Brock University. I know being a poker pro is certainly a bit like running your own business and the Twitch side of things certainly is a form of communication. To what extent do you feel like your educational background helped you get where you are now? Yeah, that's awesome. And it is funny because I, I thought about that when I was first getting into it. Like, hey, this is so transferable. Business communications, Twitch and poker and streaming. It's like exactly it. But to be honest, university was just kind of a joke to me. Like, I didn't learn too much. I kind of just skated by and got my degree, going out and partying. And just, I feel like most of my business sense that I got was from my dad and my grandfather. Both of them were entrepreneurs and extremely intelligent guys. And my uncles are super smart too. So I honestly felt like going through university, for sure you learn like different stuff and you do case studies and you learn about specific organizations and the things that happened and why they were successful and why they failed. And you do learn a bunch of stuff, but I felt like I had a lot of the basic fundamentals of like my profs would be saying stuff and I'd be like, yeah, that's what my dad taught me from the time I was like three years old. Like that's what I felt like. I did feel like university was a little bit of a waste of time and energy. And if I'd have put all that time and energy into studying poker, if I had spent $40,000 or whatever I did on like room and board for four years. And then if I had spent all that time and energy on poker, I'd be crashing right now so that's kind of what i think what i think is cool but it was an amazing fun social time and that's why i went well as you mentioned earlier twitch brought you to the attention of jason somerville and the run it up crew could you tell us about those people and that organization absolutely the run it up team and the organization and the people there are the best people walking on the face of this planet. Like when I went to Run It Up Reno the first time, it was the best time I've ever had. It was live poker with the coolest crew of people. That's all I thought. I couldn't believe how much fun it was. I wasn't part, I wasn't a member of Team Run It Up at that time. I was just going because I was a new poker streamer and Kevin Martin, my good buddy, he was just like, buddy, you gotta come this time. And I'm like, for sure I'm coming. So we get there. I just felt like I became best friends with everyone that was working there. It was crazy. I was like, I couldn't believe everyone was so awesome. We were just hanging out, having drinks, talking, doing poker, going for dinner. And and then when I got back, I, I was talking, like we just all stayed connected. 
And I was like, okay, this is amazing. But then the people aside, the tournament series itself is absolutely incredible. It's so many fun, different structured games that you wouldn't normally get to play. They have like Taiwanese poker, win the button games, all in or fold tournaments, just crazy stuff that like, yeah, I would never play before. And it doesn't matter if you don't know how to play. The dealers are so nice. Everyone at the table is so nice. It feels like a super huge home game. Then they have their whole online army. Like they're running Twitch poker right now in the best possible way. They're helping out all these streamers and they do all the behind scenes stuff for me. And I'm sure a bunch of other people just, when I need help, I'm messaging someone from team running up and being like, my audio's not working today or something just screwed up. Music's off, snip's not working. They're in within two seconds. Boom, they solve the problem. Well, finally, Arlie, the PSPC is about to start. Oh my God. So a $25,000 buy-in, boys. I don't even know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> I have an average buy-in of $13, over 32,000 games on PokerStars. So a 25K buy-in, is, it's something that my mind can't really comprehend. And it's funny because I haven't thought about it too much, and I need to start thinking about it because it's coming up. And it's real, like it's happening. So I just, whew, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, I'm going to play my game. I'm going to just do my best not to play scared and to like get into a big pot when I need to and just pray it holds. Like that's the only thing I'm thinking, making the money and or making a sun run. Imagine I just sun run that game. Imagine just getting sat down at a table with 70% platinum passes, just a lucky table draw. Oh my God. Like that is <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars on the table and you could be playing against straight up amateurs. I, 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 it's hard to think about guys. It really is. It's exciting. <laughs> Yeah, table draw is going to be pretty huge. I can't remember which exact EPT it was that I played, but I sat down and my day one table was amazing and I couldn't work out why it was so amazing. And then afterwards I'd heard that over half the table had come in through spinning goes. So That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Arlie, you are certainly one of the game's up-and-comers. I love your energy. You seem to love life in an infectious way. You entertain thousands of people with your stream and I've no doubt you entertained our audience today. So thank you for that. Arlie Shaban. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you having me. It is an absolute honor that legends like you even want to have me on. Look at him saying all the right things there. Yeah, I know. And good luck in the Bahamas. I really appreciate it. And the future is looking bright, guys. Let's go. Ian Simpson is in the Bahamas, so I'm flying solo with the news this week. Well, the biggest winner of 2018 was, of course, $25 million man Justin Bonomo. His highlight in a year of highlights was victory in the High Roller Bowl in May for $5 million. Well, a few weeks ago, the Winter High Roller Bowl was won by Isaac Haxton, who saw off challenges on a star-studded table that included Adrian Mateus, Alex Foxen, Igor Kurganov, Ali Imsarovic, Talal Shikurchi, and Stevie Chidwick. In the end, Ike took down the title and 3.6 million dollars defeating the newly crowned GPI player of the year Alex Foxen heads up congratulations to Alex who in the end held off David Peters and Stevie Chidwick by a healthy margin Stevie obviously finished number one in the UK other country first places include Rainer Kempe in Germany Benjamin Pollock in France Adrian Mateus in Spain Dario Sammartino in Italy and former guest Mark McDonnell in Ireland also big shout out here for Chrissy Bicknell who won the GPI for Canada Chrissy in 26th position also finished as the highest female in the GPI for the second year running more news next week as there will be a winner and no doubt some huge stories from the Bahamas fingers crossed one of them features our newsman Ian Simpson who by then might just be too rich to ever speak to us again
For our strategy segment this week, we're going to take a look at a hand that I played at the Unibet Open Dublin in late November of last year. Now, this was a televised hand. It was on the live stream. Essentially, this hand is a bit of a GTO versus exploit example. I do quite a big divergence toward the end from what would seem to be a more standard play. And the reasons for that will come out in the wash. So we'll, we'll get right to it. I open ace five in the cutoff. I'm playing relatively deep. Richie O'Neill, a regular on the Irish poker scene who finished quite high in the Irish rankings actually in 2018, flats 6-4 of hearts. A loose enough call from the small blind. Yeah, there's a couple of things we should say about this hand from the start. First of all, I watched this hand for the first time to prepare for this piece. And the first thing that jumped out at me was I was surprised that you appeared to be opening for over two and a half big blinds with a hand as weak as ace five. But I think what we've ascertained is that the blinds had actually just gone to eight and 16. So you open for a min raise, which is fine with this hand it's probably the worst hand we should be opening we probably shouldn't be opening ace four off but with it being a tournament with big antis I think we should be opening this hand if we're opening this hand it means that we're opening about 33% of hands which seems about right you described Richie's defend of the small blind as quite loose in his defense I would say that against a passive pot controlling fish you're going to realize your <laughs> equity more with 6-4 but yeah normally wouldn't be recommended I played quite a bit with Richie and I know he does like these types of hands so my perception of his range is that he's missing all of the top hands uh, you know your aces your kings your queens your ace king all the hands that he would three bet but he has a lot of these type of hands which are you know playable but not particularly strong yeah he likes a pretty hand I think it's fair to say well the pot is 9200 the flop comes 664 I don't realise it yet but that's a favourable flop for my opponent and his 64 he checks and with ace 5 here I elect check back I think this is a pretty standard check back I have the 5 in my hand so I can call on a lot of turn cards when I pick up some straight equity also I can call just because I have ace high and I can be a little bit sticky with this hand I think for at least one street just on its own and I think it's in this particular scenario as well while a bet will achieve some things it may just clean out some equity of like sort of 9, 10, 10 jack, jack queen type of hands that he might have. It also opens the door to be check raise on a board that I don't have too many sixes, I don't have too many fours yeah, this is an interesting spot. This comes up quite a lot. And I think people often have a misconception about these types of boards and that they think they favor the defender more than they actually do. I mean, while it might be true that he might have more sixes and fours than you and and he can have a hand like he has six, four suitors, which you can't. I mean, that's a pretty narrow range of hands. If we think back to the preflop ranges, you are opening hands above a certain strength, ace five being the weakest. So you can still have all the top hands like aces, kings, queens that he can't have. So while he can have some super strong hands, you have more, you know, very strong hands on this board as well so this is actually a pretty good board for you so based on that this is a board that you can bet more than he can he can't really bet this board at all when he checks I think you should probably be betting over half the time you can make an argument actually for just betting 100% and using a small sizing that's a coherent strategy if you put it to a solver what's going to come back is it's going to want to bet some hands and check some hands and your hand I think makes a perfect check it's not going to fold out anything better when it bets and it's not getting caught by too many worse hands so in that sense it is a perfect check so I think your check on the flop is probably the best line so I do check and I, I'm glad to hear that's a PO approved decision. The turn is a six, so he's been upgraded to quad sixes. For me in this spot, I felt like Richie really has to start doing his own betting now. I can have maybe some strong hands that I've decided to take a street out with. I certainly should have a lot of call one street hands because I have elected to check back on the flop. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like you nearly always have a one street hand here, actually, once you've checked the flop, apart from maybe a few slow played monsters. But if we also think range on range on the flop already, 
already we said that it was more likely he has a six, also more likely he has a four. You're probably not opening ace four, whereas he probably is calling with ace four. And once the flop goes check, check, I think his range strengthens much more than your range because you would have bet, I'm pretty sure if you had a six, you'd want to start building a pot. You would have bet some of your over pairs, both for equity denial and for value. So once it goes check, check, your range becomes very heavily weighted towards exactly the type of hand you have, ace high with decent showdown, but can't really withstand too much heat. So I think given that his best bet to get more than one street out of you is to start betting himself now. If he bets now, you pretty much have to call and then maybe you'll call the river as well. You might improve on the river and that's probably his best shot at getting two streets. Yeah, and I think that is fair to say. And I certainly considered it once he checked the turn, it crossed my mind that he did probably have a, a 10 jack, a queen 10 type of hand. And actually it wasn't any harm to make a fairly small bet here to deny equity. Uh, also for value, maybe he would float with that sort of hand hoping to catch a pair, I don't know. So I do bet, I, I think I bet 3,500, roughly one third. I like that sizing in game, but actually, Dara, I know you've done a little bit of research into this one and think I can get away with smaller again. Yeah, once I saw this, I immediately thought that this was too big because essentially all you're trying to do with your bet is to, is to deny equity to hands like Queen Jack. Now, with only one card to come and only six outs, you don't have to bet very big for him to have to fold that hand or else make a mistake by calling. So I felt that probably something more towards 20 to 25% of pot would have been a better sizing. Having put it through the solver, the solver does prefer the 20% sizing, which pretty much gets the job done against the folding part of his range. Obviously, he's never folding the 6-4, but that's neither here nor there. We have to think about his whole range. Absolutely. And I thought that was a good point to extract from this. There is a bigger theme to this hand, but I think maybe for a lot of players, particularly live players, a one-third bet is maybe as small as they go in a lot of situations where, of course, we know in vogue now, maybe helped along by the solvers over the last few years, that one big blind bets, 20%, 25% bets are actually pretty normal these days that they actually operate as very good continuation bet sizings on certain boards. And just maybe for you guys out there to have a little think about your sizings, maybe when you just kind of automatically maybe bet the same as you put in pre-flop, which will always kind of be about a third, you can actually go a little bit smaller in those situations. Yeah, totally. Like I said, we just have to think about what our bet is trying to achieve. And really our bet is trying to just deny equity to two random cards higher than a six that are behind us right now, but have six outs. So with only one card to come, those hands only have roughly 15% equity. So if we bet 20, 25%, he's making a mistake calling with them and he's folding away 15% equity if he folds. So I do make a bet. I bet 3,500. Richie calls that 3,500. Now that I've seen the hand, I definitely expect him to go for a check raise in this spot. Yeah, I think this might be the most surprising decision in the whole hand. When I watched this hand for the first time, I assumed he was going to bet the turn. But when he didn't bet the turn, I thought, okay, well, he's going for a check raise. But then you bet and he just called. I understand it in the sense that he basically has his board absolutely smashed. Like you can see all four sixes and two of the fours. Uh, (laughs) So it's very, very difficult for you to have anything. But I think he still has to try and think, well, what's the best way for me to get two or more bets? And I think the check call line is not necessarily it because it's going to be hard to extract value in the river unless you actually have a hand because the check, 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 bet, call, and then suddenly lead on the river line looks ridiculously strong. And I think it's going to be harder to get paid off than the check raise on the turn. Yeah, and I got to say the check raise on the turn would have seemed really fishy to me in game had it come because, you know, he's basically polarizing himself to a six or maybe 
sort of trying to take control of the hand with a medium pair and seeing if I'll react with another raise so that maybe he doesn't lose too many chips if it's kind of over pair against over pair. I'm not really sure. I think it would have been fishy enough that maybe he'd have got a cry call out of me. I think you're supposed to call your hand, to be honest. I mean, if you're going to fet fold a hand as strong as ace-5, that seems a bit too much folding. Given the sizing that you're using, this is essentially an equity denial bet, but also to some degree a value bet as well. It's not a bluff. I mean, if you have eight high or nine high, then you're clearly bluffing. And given that those are hands which definitely have to give up to a check raise, I think ace-5 probably would have to continue to a check raise call one. It obviously depends on his sizing. But yeah, I think you're right. It would look a little bit fishy. So now to the river. Well, I'm guessing you guys at home are expecting something interesting and I will provide something interesting. The river comes a five, making me the top boat that is available on the board. Of course, there are over pairs that make better boats. And of course, the six sitting in Richie's hand makes him quads, which means I cannot beat him. He then leads at me for 10K. Pot is about 16K. And immediately on commentary, the guys are like, oh, the worst card in the deck for Dave. He's going to have to pay them off. And that is certainly what was going through my head at that moment. I felt like, oh, well, like, I guess he can have a four a lot here and I now have to call because I have a five. I didn't really consider any value in raising, although I think you're going to maybe open me up to the world of other creative possibilities. But in that situation, yeah, I just felt like, wow, okay, piece it together, Dave. What is he doing here? One thing I would have to point out at this point is Richie's body language was unbelievably strong. And you can see that on camera. Yeah, it's a good point made in what's an audio medium. He does look ridiculously strong. We presumably put this up on YouTube at some stage for people to view. But when I saw him, I thought, oh man, how strong does he look? When the flop comes down, he almost looks like it's Christmas. And (laughs) he's very watchful. He's watching you. He's clearly very interested. He checks quite ostentatiously. And it's clear that he hasn't given up on this hand. And he's quite happy with the hand. And there's a bit of to and fro with you in terms of speech play. And it's just obvious that he's really happy with life. It's a weird river situation now because, to be honest, we shouldn't really be in this spot. (laughs) He should have either bet the turn with his hand or check raised when you gave him the opportunity to. So in GTO land, let's say, you both get here with very weak ranges because all of your strong hands should have played differently. Your strong hands should have started betting on the flop. His strong hands should have led the turn or check raised the turn. So you both should really arrive here with very weak ranges. Given that that's the case, when he bets, he should be betting a mix of bluffs and even a four is strong enough to bet for value now, given how weak your range is. So in a situation where you are beating some of his value bets and all of his bluffs, in game theory land, this is a slam dunk call. You can't consider anything else. In fact, it's probably even strong enough to raise. He really shouldn't have anything stronger than a four. Uh, now, we know he has, but he really shouldn't have anything stronger than a four because the, the hand stronger than four should have played differently on the turn. So given that he is at the top of his range with a four and he can't just call fours, he should also be calling some ace highs, I think, if you raise. So you can actually get called by worse if you go for a raise here. Now, as Dara said, we will put this up on YouTube and, and I hope I will be somewhat vindicated in my very exploit strategy here. Yeah, I play quite a bit with Richie as well. As you said, he's a regular on the air scene. He goes deep a lot in tournaments. So we've all had a fair amount of table time with him. Richie's definitely capable of moves and bluffs. We both know that and we know that he's quite a loose preflop. So he can have hands that other people might not show up with here. That said, my experience of Richie, like most live players, is that if he's going to bluff, he does it in whatever the most straightforward manner is. And if you think about somebody wanting to bluff in this spot, the obvious spot to start bluffing on is on the turn after the flop goes check, check. Taking the line of deciding to check called the turn to bluff the river that's a pretty elaborate sophisticated bluff line and in my experience live players really don't take that line so anytime you see the early streets go check call 
and then suddenly you're led into on the river. In my experience, live in particular, that's almost always weighted towards value. Yeah, and I suppose that goes against the GTO solution that we spoke about a moment ago, where obviously we're just meant to call, and maybe we're still meant to call anyway, because if you have a four in your hand, that's still a value for Richie, and I still could have been folding the worst hand, but I did fold, and as I said on commentary, I'm going to look like an idiot or a genius here. Uh, I guess it made me look like someone who had read the situation well, but to be honest, I'm not that naive. I know that plays like that are a bit above the rim and by being a bit above the rim, they're not going to be solver approved and you're in the realm of trusting live reads. And that's a very fuzzy guesswork, hoping to guess right more often than not place to put yourself in. And I really was keen to know what the solver would say and what you would say, Dara. And I guess you are sort of more justifying my fold maybe because you picked up some of the live stuff I did as well. But it's really interesting to see at all those decision points what we both did. Yeah, this is a massive divergence. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Players like Doug Polk, when they talk about diverging, they say it's okay to make small divergences. In other words, if it's a pretty close decision, but you feel the guy is strong, then fold. If it's a pretty close decision and you think the guy is weak, then call. That's fine. Even if it's like minus EV when you make the call or or slightly plus EV when you make the fold. In this case, it's massively plus EV. I mean, the fold is about 20 big blinds worse than the other options. So <laughs> if you were up against somebody who knew your tendencies and knew that you could make these type of folds, they could exploit you massively by making these river bets. And that's what it always comes down to in these GTO versus exploit spots. Even if you know the game theory, you have to ask yourself how close to game theory is the other player playing? And I mean, I think we've shown that Richie basically fell out of the game theory tree on the turn by playing his hand passively. Yeah, a fascinating hand. I hope you guys enjoy our coverage of it here in audio form. If you'd like to go watch it yourself, you can find it as part and parcel of the day one coverage at Unibet Open Dublin. We will make a video of it, I'm sure, in the not too distant future. Daryl Kearney, as usual, thank you very much. Thanks, Dave, and good fold in this case. (laughs) One time. We're joined now by Poker Hall of Famer, a player and broadcaster whose popularity transcends the game of poker. He won his World Series of Poker Brazel in 1989 and his WPT title in 2016, the tour with which he has been synonymous since its inception 17 years ago. A former gymnast, paratrooper, little league coach, ballroom dancer and WSOP Tournament of Champions winner. He is, of course, the legend, Mike Sexton. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. Hi, Mike. So lovely to have you, Mike. Well, I want to start with a quote, if I may, I found from you. You said a few years ago, I know a lot of people say it was the moneymaker effect or online poker, but believe me, it was the World Poker Tour that brought poker to television that created the poker boom. What was it about the WPT that made you feel like it lit the fuse for that explosion of poker in the 2000s? Well, because it actually brought poker into the homes of people across America on a weekly basis. So they set up Wednesday night, it's poker night, it was on the Travel Channel back then, and that show became extremely popular from the get-go. And there's no question that the popularity of that TV show, in my opinion, caused the explosion of poker, where it just took off just unbelievably around the U.S. Now, a few months later, after we launched the show, Moneymaker won the tournament, of course. Online poker was coming into existence. Hollywood embraced poker, which was big for us back then. And the whole culmination just created such a boom. It was just incredible. And I was just so thrilled to be a part of it as an original member of the commentating team on the World Poker Tour. So... A fantastic ride, it really was. Well, as well as the WPT, you have a long association with the Irish Open, travelling to Dublin for the event down the years. As Irishmen, we're obviously a bit biased, but how do you rate the event and how did you come to start playing it? Well, the event is fantastic because it's just not the poker. It's the camaraderie. 
It's everybody uh, mingling in the bar together. It's the crack that you Irish guys are good at. That I was <laughs> <at>. and, <laughs> and it's just so much fun. I can remember after I busted out of the main event once, I go in the bar and everybody's having drinks and they cheer you when you come in after you bust out. And, you know, as soon as somebody comes through the door, it says, oh, my God, yeah, I just took the worst beat. They just boo the guy out of the bar. They don't want to hear any bad beat story. <laughs> you know? But if a guy comes in, oh, I play like a mug. You know, I can't believe I'm such an idiot. Then they cheer him. Come on in, we'll buy you a drink, you know. Or if a guy said he bluffed his money off, then he gets free rounds of drinks as well. So it was just so much fun to be a part of that atmosphere. And I just miss it. I just can't wait to come back to it because it has more social aspect, poker and, and camaraderie and, and intermix of the players than any other event I've been to. Well, we would certainly love to have you back at a future one. Speaking of the Irish Open, I had the great pleasure not only to meet you there in 2015, but also to co-commentate with you for a, a little stint. I remember being warned before you came in that your contract with WPT meant that you couldn't analyse hands, but you more than made up for that by regaling the listeners with stories from past Irish Opens. Any particular favourite story you'd like to share with our listeners now? Oh, gosh. No, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, Mike, you know I'm angling here for a debauched Porrick Parkinson story. Now, you must have one. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, I've got a lot. The first time I met Porrick was back in the 90s. We were playing in a poker tournament in London. It was a pot lemon Omaha tournament. And we got down uh, where we made the final table, and Porrick was the chip leader. And I was sitting in my usual seventh or eighth place. <laughs> <laughs> so we came on dinner break. So he invited everybody, and everybody at the final table went to the same pub. He said, come on, let's get down to the pub. And so we go to the pub together, everybody at the final table. And we start socializing, having drinks. And Padre, who I'd never met until this event, said, you know, there's no sense in us going back. He said, why don't you guys just give me the title? You chop up the rest of the money. We'll just stay here and party the rest of the night, you know. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. And then we went back. And, of course, he did mop the floor with all of us and won the tournament. So that was something that I remembered. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, well, Mike, we'd like to turn to your origin story as a poker player. How did you start playing and how did you end up playing for a living? Well, I started playing when I was 13 years old. A guy named Danny Robinson, who many feel was the best seven-card stud player ever, is the guy that taught me how to play in Dayton, Ohio. And then he later partnered with Chip Reese, and they went to Las Vegas one summer with a $1,000 bankroll, and four months later, turned it into a million dollars. And they became the Gold Dust Twins in Las Vegas and icons and legends. And, and so when I used to go out to Vegas, I'd stay with those guys. So I, I got to hang around the top right there. But uh, literally, when I got out of college, I joined the Army, got stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and... When I got out of the service, a guy had offered me a job. I was teaching part-time ballroom dancing at the time. And he was a millionaire, and he was starting a new company and hired me. And so I did that for three years and got married. And then after three and a half years, got a divorce. But in the meantime, I was finding some home poker games to play in. And it turns out I was doing better in the home poker games than I was doing on the job. So once I got divorced, I just quit the job and said, I'm just going to play poker for a living. You know, if I get broke, I can always go back and get another job. And literally, that was in 1977. And I never had another paycheck for the next 25 years. So it was pretty amazing that, you know, I just played poker for a living in North Carolina for eight years, just going to home games, running a game. And that's how it started. And then because I was an avid Little League coach and whatnot, I wanted to stay in North Carolina. And then the game started to dry up. And then for me, 1984 was a big year. It was the first time I ever went to the World Series of Poker. And back then you had one tournament every other day. You'd play cash games or satellites. So in a week's time, you can only play in three tournaments. So that's what I did. I made two final tables. And because of that result of getting to the final table twice in a week, uh, I said, you know, if I want to be a poker player, I need to move to Las Vegas. So in January of 85, I moved to Las Vegas and been there ever since. 
So that's how it happened for me. I often wonder that what would have happened had I not made those final tables? Would I still be in North Carolina? You know, who knows? It's funny how just one event or, or something will change your life dramatically. And that happened to be it for me. You mentioned following Danny out to Vegas in the early days. Did that mean that you were essentially in the same social circles immediately as people like Doug Bronson, etc.? What's well, funny because to get in that circle, those guys were really high stakes players, of course. And you can't get in that circle unless you're a high stakes player. And I wasn't a high stakes player back then. I didn't have any money. But I was good friends with Danny and Chip, who were both from Dayton, Ohio, like I was. And because of that, I was in that circle. And I got accepted by all those guys, by Doyle Brunson, by Puggy Pearson, you know, all the high rollers back in those days. And they embraced me. So, you know, it was very fortunate for me that even though I didn't play in those games, that I had good access to all those guys and became good friends with all of them. You know, I was very blessed in that regard. You know, I consider myself like one of the lone remaining links, really, of the real old school poker guys, the guys that played the main event back in the 70s and uh, today's modern players. So I appreciate those guys from the old days because I'm an old school guy myself. And I think all young players need to really take time out and uh, learn a little bit of history about the game and appreciate those guys that paved the way for all of us. Well, here, here to that, Mike, you're doing these segues for me. Uh, my next question is, you describe yourself in the past as the connection between old school guys and poker today. I remember you saying to me in Dublin that you felt an obligation to tell the stories about those players past, because if you didn't tell them, who would? Your relationship with the late Stu Unger, a man you called the Bobby Fisher of poker, well, what a legend he was. What was it like to be around him on and off the felt? Well, this guy literally had the quickest mind of anybody I've ever known before or since. And it's incredible. We all know he had a photographic memory, a genius IQ. He dropped out of school when he was 14 years old and, you know, just became a gambler. He was playing gin rummy for the mafia when he was 16 years old. Came to Vegas to play gin rummy against the high stakes players and, and beat them all so bad it was unbelievable. And back in those days, every one of the high stakes poker players were really, really good gin players. And Stewie came out there and just mopped up the floor with all of them. Finally, nobody would play him anymore. And then he ended up having to switch to poker and obviously became a, a poker icon as well. I mean, we all know the story. The first time he entered the main event, the World Series, he won it. The second time he entered, he won it again. <laughs> and he won it the last time he played it. So the guy's really remarkable. And I truly believe in no lemon hold him that he's the greatest player that ever lived, even with today's great players. I just wish he would have lived to the TV era because I believe he would have got off the drugs. He loved the limelight. He loved patting on the back. And the problem back in those days was he only had a $10,000 event once, twice a year. You had Amarillo Slims tournament in January and the main event of the World Series in the spring. And that was it, you know. So if you bombed out of the main event, you were very depressed back then because you had to wait another year to play a 10K main event. Whereas now you can play 10Ks, 25, 50Ks, 100Ks every week somewhere if you want to. So it was just different back then. And the pain of getting knocked out of the main event back in those days was far greater than it is today for that reason. And I believe had Stewie been around now when the World Poker Tour came around where he was on television that he not only would have been the biggest star on the WPT, he would have been so far above whoever was in second place that it's not even funny. He's just a phenom and a savant that just comes along uh, once or twice in a lifetime is all. Absolutely. What about off the felt though, Mike? You know, obviously you had a long-lasting friendship with him. Is there anything about him that maybe isn't captured by, I suppose, the stories you've told us there, which are more in the public domain? Yeah, well, in my book, Life's a Gamble, I do a chapter on Stewie, and it, it's really a good chapter because there's a lot of good stories about him in there. And most of them are his gambling stories, of course, and just like a Phil Ivey is a gambler. These guys were big gamblers, not just the best poker players, but they were the biggest sports bettors, the biggest bettors on the golf course, uh, the biggest bettors in the race book. It didn't matter. 
they just gambled high on everything. It didn't matter what it was. And those two guys were similar in that regard. And obviously, you know, Ivy at one time was considered the number one cash game player in the world, the number one tournament player in the world, and the number one online player in the world. So I don't know if anybody's ever covered all three bases like that before. But as far as Unger goes, you know, we were friends and we played a lot of golf together back in those days. Obviously, he grew up in New York City, so he never played golf until he got to Las Vegas. And then he started playing some and was gambling sky high right from the get-go. And <laughs> and uh, But so was Ivy when he started playing golf. And Negreanu when he started playing golf. You know, golf was just a really, really big aspect of most poker players' lives back in those days. And, you know, it's not quite like that today. But, but back then, all the high-stakes poker players, virtually all of them were golfers and you know, that's where all the action was, really, and, and big action. You know, Stewie staked me in a lot of golf matches, so we became close, and, you know, it was just fun. But ironically, as much as he was into the drug world, he completely sheltered me from that life. I mean, he would never let me be around it. He would never let me be around it if he was high. He wouldn't answer his phone if I'd call him. You know, so it was just sort of a weird relationship that I really respected and appreciated that he didn't drag me down that lifestyle or want me anywhere near it when he was doing drugs or, or whatnot. You know, that, that was a test of friendship in my mind that, that I always appreciated from him. Well, as you mentioned, Mike Stewie was, was famously a gambler in every sense of the word. You yourself are quoted as saying, all my bankroll swings came because of betting on sports. I'm not proud of it, but I stayed broke for over 25 years because of my one and only leak, my sports betting habit. What was it about sports betting that was so alluring to you? It was just action. You know, I love watching sports on TV, and obviously you don't want to watch something on TV if you don't have any bet on it. You know, it was always out of control with me, even when I didn't have any money. Back in the, in the 70s when I was playing the poker games, you know, I'd, I'd win literally every day playing poker. I'd play five, six nights a week and win virtually every day of the week, and on Monday I still didn't have enough money to pay the bookmakers. Now, that's pretty sick, but, you know, and they never worried about it because they knew I was a winning poker player and would pay them, and, and so even if I owed them, it never bothered them. So sadly, uh, you know, I always bet beyond my means. When I moved to Las Vegas, the big mistake I made probably is on the weekends in Las Vegas is probably the best time to be in the poker room and be, play poker because that's when the tours come to town. But when they'd come to town, I'd be in the sports book or watching all the games rather than playing poker. So not only did I lose my money in the sports book, I missed out on the money I should have been making at the poker table. So it's a, a double indemnity for me. But I'm not proud of it. And the only reason I bring it up and tell people about it is I just hope that some young guys don't fall in the same trap that I did and wake up and smell the coffee far earlier than I did. And, you know, and it, what's funny about sports betting, even when I didn't have money, I bet 500 or 1,000 a game, it seemed like, on the whole sheet. And when I came into some big money, uh, you just bet more. You bet 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 a game. So it's all relative. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter how much money you have. Uh, you can certainly go broke. And you just have to be careful about it. And certainly, uh, you know, it's fun to do. But, you know, back then for me, because I had so many bookmakers I could bet, you never have to post up the cash. If you always had to post up cash like you do in the casinos, you can only bet what you have. So you can't lose more than that. You can't be in debt when the day's over with. You might be broke, but you can't be in debt. But, you know, the bookmakers understand that by betting the whole sheet, you're going to lose X amount of dollars. And that's why they give you credit and let you do it. And that's how they make their money. If players had to post up with every bookmaker, uh, believe me, those guys just struggle to make a living. So it made a difference in terms of how much money you can bet because you have credit and bookmakers. And, and it was just out of control with me. And it was for years and years. And even when I had big money, you just bet more. It's something I'm not proud of, as I say, but I don't mind telling the story because I hope other young guys today uh, don't fall in that same trap that I did and go through their bankrolls and, and ruin their families and do all this kind of stuff for some stupid habit. And did 
betting that big, Mike, especially when you were maybe kind of dealing with IOU situations with bookies, did that ever put you in sort of scary situations? I can imagine a bookie who has been paid in quite a while might not be the most forgiving person in the world. Uh, yeah, no, that's true. But, you know, I never had a problem. Nobody ever threatened to break my arms or legs or none of that kind of stuff. I didn't deal with those kind of people. They all knew they would get paid. And so everybody was patient with me. But, you know, every once in a while I say, hey, can you make a payment? Can you do this or that? And, and obviously you do. But it's the same kind of thing as a needle in the arm. I can see it because on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, you know, you just, you're so excited because the day's coming up with all the games. And I'm sure it's just like a fix when you're doing drugs. Uh, you get that same kind of uh, anticipation before you actually do it. So it was exciting for me and fun for me. And, and obviously when you're broke, you always think in the back of your mind, well, hey, you know, I'll get lucky over the weekend. I'll have a bankroll Monday morning. You know, because you're always <laughs> dreaming about making the score. And I don't know where you can make a score if you're broke and have no money at all. And then uh, maybe there's a chance on Monday that you have money again. So, <laughs> you know, so the bookmaker. Well, Mike, you mentioned how it can obviously be devastating to people with families and, and whatnot. In 2008, your wife, Karen, gave birth to your son, Ty. Did having a baby change your outlook on gambling from that point onward? Did you suddenly become maybe a bit more uh, risk averse? Yes. Definitely did. Uh, Definitely makes a difference. It changes your life completely. No question about it. You know, I was so blessed because I didn't have my son until I was 60 years old. So to have a son that late in life, I was lucky I had a young wife. It's been such a blessing that I just can't tell you, but you definitely do wake up both as you get older. And if you have kids, you know, you realize that there's priorities in life far above poker. And that if you go through your money, you know, you're going to have big problems, you know, and I always tell everybody, all these young guys that, and people are come to me, you know, I'm, I want to turn pro, quit my job. And I always discourage that or try to, especially for guys that have wives and kids. I really think that if you're going to be a poker player or attempt to be a poker pro, you should do it when you're single, when you're young. Because if you go broke, it's just not that big a deal. You can always get a job. But when you've got a mortgage and a wife and kids and all that kind of extra pressure on you to win, it's just so much tougher to do. It just really is. If you have to win to pay the rent, it's just really, really tough to do. Well, in 2016, you published your book, Life's a Gamble, which is one of the great poker autobiographies. I've just finished writing my own poker book this year, and I don't mind saying it was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. What was your own working process like when you were writing that book? Well, you know, I've had these stories for so long, and everybody said I should put them together and blah, blah, blah. And and so finally, I decided to do it. Now, originally, I had a publisher in New York, and they didn't think it was spicy enough or something. And so I almost was going to give up on the idea. And then D&B Publishing came to me and said, hey, we'd love to do your book, you know. So I ended up doing it. I wrote it all myself. And, you know, it's not a how-to poker book. There's about 3,000 of those out there. It's just a fun read. Even I still enjoy reading it every once in a while. And I wrote it. But it's still fun for me to look back at those stories and remember those things that happened. You know, I do think there's a good part of poker history in the book, how online poker started, at least with party poker and certainly the World Poker Tour. And then I tell stories of some of the icons in the poker world, Chip Reese, Stu Unger, Puggy Pearson, Billy Baxter, Doyle Brunson, have chapters and all those guys. And it's just a fun, good read. And I think anybody that's a poker player would thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah, I definitely echo that. One thing you mentioned there was that your original publisher wanted you to spice up the books. It is kind of sad that the mainstream view of poker is very narrow and they're looking for sort of scandalous stories, etc. whereas actually the, the reality can be a lot more interesting, particularly to poker players. Were you ever tempted to actually play along and just spice things up for the sake of getting the book out with the original publisher? Oh, you know, no. You know, if you know me as a commentator, you know, I'm not one of those guys that be rape players. You know, if, they, if I think they made a real bad play, for example, at the final table, I may say, 
you know, well, they might have done something alternative than that. But, you know, I, I'm not a knocker. I'm not a, a negative kind of guy. And it's just not me. So for me to do some of that or to put some of the negative concepts of poker you know, I, I'm out there to try to make the game grow. And, you know, I think if you talk about cheating stories and do some of this other stuff uh, publicly, it turns people off to playing the game. And uh, I'm just not for that. Well, it's funny you should mention that. You have been very vocal about your belief that the group of people that started Full Tilt were able to do so because of the WPT and how it promoted them and made them poker superstars, really, back in the day. You were also rightly scathing of those same people when it was discovered that they'd use player balances to fund the company and consequently couldn't pay up after Black Friday. A lot of people these days are keen to forgive and forget that stuff and others started in the game after it all happened. So maybe having not experienced it firsthand, they sort of view it as ancient history. How important is it though to remember what happened and who the players were in a scandal like that, if for no other reason but to prevent something like that happening again? Well, certainly it's important it never happens again. I truly believe that because of that scandal, we don't have online poker in the US today. Uh, I think it was such a negative thing that, uh, uh, you know, it's just hard to get it legalized in certain places when they see those kind of past history scandals involved with the game. You know, it still boggles my mind, you know, how smart these guys were and how sharp they were yet to take money that people deposit on a site. It's like putting money in the bank. They're just holding your money. You're not allowed to take their money and do television ads with it and pay shareholders with it and do this kind of stuff. And how none of those guys went to jail, just mind boggling to me. You know, it was obviously a, a tremendous blow to the poker world and it hurt it for a long time. And I believe still hurts it because of that. And, and it's just very sad. And uh, I hate that it happened. I, I know the intentions of those guys just thought that, you know, the gravy train was never going to end. But then when that Black Friday came on April the 15th of 2011 and shut them down, uh, they didn't have money to pay the players back. And it was just a very, very, very sad state of affairs. And I don't blame the young players at all that had money deposited on that site. Why they're still pissed at all those guys. Well, speaking of online poker sites, I know you were there with Party Poker from the start. I heard you say in another interview that you were the guy they brought in more or less to explain their programmers how poker worked. I think I'm also right in saying that there was some unfortunate timing around you selling your stake in the company. Uh, would you mind telling us the mother of all bad beat stories? <laughs> well, a lot of people think it's the worst bad beat story ever. And uh, since it cost me over $500 million, they might be right. But, uh, <laughs> it's hard to argue with that, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah no arguments here, Mike. I sold my shares. You know, I looked at it. I tell the story that, you know, it's like you're playing a hand of no lemon holding with the five, seven of diamonds. And you call a raise and it gets raised and re-raised back to you. And so you throw your hand away and uh, the flop comes eight, six, four. And one guy flopped three eights, the other guy flopped three sixes. And you would have tripled up had you played the pot. But when you made the fold, uh, you were doing the right thing at the time. And you're still sort of broke, you know, and they're offering you 15 million for your stock. It seemed like the right thing to do at that time. And uh, I never regretted selling at that time, making that kind of money. You'd think that would be enough money to last you. Now, obviously, if I knew it was coming a year and a half later, where they were going to go public with it, where I could have made, obviously, well over 500 million, I'd have kept the stock. But, you know, you do the thing that you feel is the best. And at that time, I felt like uh, selling my shares for 15 million. I was the last shareholder in the U.S. And who knows what legally could have happened. Just suppose, for example, I'd have kept the stock and uh, Black Friday would have come before we went public. And then I would have got zero for it. And then how long would I have been kicking myself if I didn't take $15 million when I could have taken it? So that's the way I looked at it. Anyway, I made a lot of money with it. But obviously, uh, you know, another $500 million, it would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, turning back to the felt, you've cashed 68 times at the World Series of Poker, a huge number, puts you right up at the top of that list. Given that figure, your Hall of One bracelet plus that Tournament of Champions crown is a modest enough return. Do you feel like you've been unlucky not to close out a few other titles? Yeah, I think I've come second three or four times. You know, it's just, it is sort of weird to me that I've only won one bracelet at the World Series because I play every year. You know, now this is my 30th anniversary coming up this year. Maybe I was just waiting so I could tie Chip Reese's all-time record. <laughs> it was 30 years between bracelets for Chip Reese, so maybe uh, it'll be 30 years between bracelets for me and him both. So <laughs> that would be pretty cool, I think. But uh, I did win the 2006 Tournament of Champions at the World Series, and that was a million dollars. And so that was a, a very fun experience. And I might credit an Irishman for the big assist in that tournament, I might add. And oh, yeah? Andy Black. <laughs> he was a big chip leader at that final table when we went to the final table and uh, <laughs> a massive pot and he went crazy with an ace king and ended up getting all his money in there and he ended up getting himself broke but had he stayed in it had been very difficult for me to win that tournament because uh, you know he had total control of the table until he just blanked out there a little bit but uh, <laughs> I, I, I love Andy Black I think he's one of the funniest guys most entertaining guys in the poker world and you know I love the old school Irish guys and you know, the Irish were the very first players outside the U.S. to come to the World Series of Poker. Terry Rogers had brought over Liam Flood and Donnick O'Day and George McKeever and these guys back in the 80s. And they were the first ones to play the main event outside the U.S. And obviously, uh, in the 90s, we had Padre come along and Andy Black and Noel Furlong and Alan Betson and Mickey Finn and Marty Smith and Fenton Gavin, Mike McGee. All these guys from Ireland used to love to come over to the World Series of Poker and play. And obviously, we know the 1999 main event of the World Series was dominated by the Irish. I think they had six entries in the whole field of 393 players. They came in first, Noel Furlong, third, Padre Parkinson, eighth, George McKeever. 14th Mickey Fenn. I mean, this was amazing. That might be the most amazing historical thing about the World Series of Poker ever. Uh, you know, now, Noel Furlong, uh, for, for people that don't know him, because he played a few events, but he won the Irish Open twice, I think, back in the 80s, and he finished sixth at the World Series in 89, I know, and then won it in 1999, and he didn't only plays a handful of tournaments, as you know, in his entire lifetime. But this guy, they think Phil Ivey and Gus Hansen and Michael the Grinder, Ms. Rocky, and some of these guys are aggressive players. Well, he was more aggressive than all those guys. <laughs> I, never, I never saw a player more aggressive than this guy ever in my lifetime. Yeah, one of the first books I read in poker was Doyle's uh, Super System. And I think Doyle actually had a little rant about, about Noel in the book, uh, <laughs> describing his style as grab an ace and race. <laughs> so, even, even he Doyle. didn't need an ace either, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that comes across very much from this interview, but also just from in general, from your way of being at the table, is how incredibly positive you are. Like a lot of people are paid to be positive ambassadors and, you know, they go through the motions, but you genuinely are very positive and welcoming and friendly to all the recreational players how have you managed to maintain that enthusiasm for so long because poker has a habit of wearing people down well it seems like it but you know anybody that wants to come up and get an autograph or get your picture taken i'm flattered by it even to this day you know i remember when we first started the world poker tour it just wowed me you know i was sort of nice to be in the, in the limelight and on television and all that stuff but even now when i go to events so many people just want to take a picture with you or get your autograph and it's still flattering to me that anybody would want to take a picture with me and you know it's all because of poker and it's just been so fun to see this ride and how poker has grown and how i've played a role in it and i'm proud of that Poker's become so global. 
I mean, for years, it was just America's game. And then you Irish guys came over to the World Series. And, and then the rest of the world started coming over. And now we just see how global poker is. And there's so many great players in every single country around the world now. And that is just fantastic to see, in my opinion. And it's just wowing that the game is so alluring just to everybody around the world. Yeah, it's great to see what has become a global game still capturing the imagination and all that in no small part thanks to players such as yourself who have always championed the game and conducted themselves so well at the tables i appreciate it i'm proud of that speaking of um of people who behave well at the table the world of poker lost a fellow legend late last year with the passing of thor hansen um i know you and thor went back a long way what were your fondest memories of thor we did. He came out to the World Series back in the 80s as well. I think he won a bracelet in 88, a year before I did. I don't think anybody took bad beats better than Thor Hansen. He's probably taken more in his life than anybody else in history, maybe. It seemed like every time he got knocked out of a tournament, every time he had the best hand. And, uh, you know, but Thor was one of the truly nicest guys that you could ever be around. He was a, a worse degenerate than I was betting the sports because he bet the horses, too. That's one time <laughs> I never got involved with the horses, but it was horses and sports for him. So he had the double jeopardy. <laughs> and uh, he could never stay afloat because of it. But Thor was just one of the most fantastic guys. One of my favorite Thor stories is early, one of the early years in the World Poker Tour, uh, when first place was over a million dollars, and he was like chip leader at the end of day one. And I was standing next to a, a reporter that came up to him, Thor, Thor, congratulations. So you're chip leader, you know, you know, what are you going to do if you win this million dollars? And Thor said, well, he said, I'm going to pay back a few debts. And the reporter said, what about the rest? And Thor said, they'll have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> It's the greatest line of all time. And it wasn't trying to be funny. It was dead serious, you know. So. It sure is. <laughs> That's classic Thor. It really is. Finally, Mike, you are the consummate poker ambassador. This sort of echoes a question Tara asked earlier, but I, I want to sort of reiterate how much we really appreciate your positivity and everything you brought to our game. When we met in Dublin, you were, of course, inundated with requests from photos, like you've described before. And I remember you showing myself and Cara Scott a little trick you do where, as the photo is being taken, you do a jolly little chortle. You explained to me that by doing that, no matter when the picture is actually snapped, you're always caught smiling. Do you have any other tricks of the trade for two far less experienced ambassadors? No, other than, uh, you know, I think that you need to value and appreciate anybody who's excited about poker. We know how exciting it is when everybody first gets into the game. And you have to understand and appreciate that they put you up on a little pedestal if they're asking for an autograph or a picture. And to oblige them, I think, is just a simple thing to do if you're any kind of poker ambassador at all. And I can't imagine why people want to scorn them and they shun interviews and they, they don't want to talk to anybody and they don't want people pestering about autographs and pictures. And that pains me when I see some top players doing that, honestly, because I believe if you play poker for a living, you have an obligation to the game, to the profession, and to give back a little bit, you know, whether it's uh, do charity events or seminars or take pictures and do autographs with people. I just think that you have an obligation uh, because this is your career uh, to help the game and promote the game. And that should be your ambition and you should want to do that. And players that don't like that, uh, you know, it, it irritates me, honestly. And uh, when I saw the one guy win the one drop one year and didn't want to talk to the press and he walked out of the room, man, that was the most aggravating thing I'd ever seen. And it was just frustrating to me to see that uh, they could put together a, a tournament of that magnitude and then 
the guy didn't want to do any interviews or, or talk to the press or do anything. Now, it's his privilege. I guess he has a right to do that. He put up his money. All he wants to do is play. And I understand that, but uh, I don't like it. Well, Mike Sexton, it has been a delight speaking with you today. You are one of poker's great ambassadors. You are a wonderful bridge between old and new in our game. And for that, we thank you. Oh, guys, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate all you guys are doing to help promote the game. And love your interviews with all the players. And every big name player that's out there now is thrilled and honored when you're inviting them on your program. I'm sure of that because you guys have built up your podcast over 50 now. And congratulations on that. And just keep doing what you're doing because you're doing a great job. Thanks a lot, Mike. Playing Us Out Tonight is a song for Dara, wishing him and Barry the very best of luck with the upcoming release of their Satellite Strategy Guide. Produced by David Bowie, written by Lou Reed, sung by Lou Reed, from his 1972 album, Transformer, this is Satellite of Love. Satellite's gone up to the skies Things like that drive me out of my mind I watched it for a little while I like to watch things on TV Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of Satellite's gone Way up to Mars Soon it'll be filled With park and cars I watched it for a little while I love to watch things on TV Harry, Mark, and John Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday to Thursday With Harry, Mark, and John Satellites gone up to the skies Things like that drive me out of my mind it for a little while I love to watch things on TV Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of love Satellite of
again to Barry, Arley and Mike. On behalf of Darren and I, the very best of luck to Ian Simpson in the PSPC. Next week we'll be joined by American pro Bryn Kenny and Scottish pro David Doherty. Until then, from Dara and myself, good night and good luck. 